0: gentlemen, you've picked an awesome episode of the Ortho Real podcast to tune in to. Our guest today is Dr. Keith Behrend, a native of Columbus, Ohio, who undertook his medical school and residency training at Duke University. Uh, he is the author of greater than 180 scholarly articles. He's a member of both the Knee Society and the Hip Society. He has been instrumental in design and development of implants and training of surgeons all over the world. We are honored to have him on today, Dr. Keith Barand. Hey. Delighted to have you on this afternoon, uh, Keith. Um, got the real deal here. You are well-published, well-thought-of in the academic space, but certainly highly prolific in the joint replacement field and we're excited to have your expertise here uh, with us. Um, Just jumping right into it, hot topics and and something that's near and dear to me, outpatient joint replacement surgery. You were among the first, I believe your center at White Fence has probably done more outpatient joints in a freestanding ASC than any place in the world. Tell us about your journey there.
1: Yeah, that it's been, you know, obviously looking back on a decade now, <clears throat> uh, we opened and did our first cases in the summer of 2013. Um, I joined JIS Orthopedics in uh, 2002 uh, as a partner. I did a fellowship here a year before that. But Dr. Lombardi and Dr. Mallory were really the real pioneers in terms of efficiency and uh, subspecialized care, and in doing so, it really kind of bore out um, rapid recovery, and that whole kind of concept of of fast recovery and and looking at the whole of the patient and and the synergies between anesthesia, rehabilitation, prehab, optimization, anesthesia, pain control, mobility, so on and so forth. And so, if you look at the last really. 20 to 25 years, the length of stay has gone down from, you know, average nationally from five or six days to two or three days to three days to then, you know, in the early 2000s, it was down to one day and people really just stayed in the hospital because they had, to, it was what they were supposed to do. And so, you know, really at in 2005, 2010, when we opened our specialty hospital here in New Albany, Ohio our average length of stay was measured in hours um, as opposed to incremental days. And most patients were home post-op day one, which frequently would be less than 24 hours. And it really made the the most sense to kind of logically and safely say, well, if they can go home that quickly, maybe we could do them as an outpatient. And so working with some incredibly smart, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, adventurous people uh, with Surge Center Development, Greg George, Greg Fox, Chris Urban, um, we started out in this in this journey, and uh, my brother Mike in Indianapolis, they opened their center at the end of 2012, and then we opened ours in the summer of 2013, and, and as you said, we've done upwards of 15,000 uh, outpatient joint replacements. And by outpatient, we mean outpatient. They come in in the same day, and they go home in the same day. Uh, a little less than 1% of people stay overnight uh, now, usually for medical reasons. It's uh, it's usually oxygenation. Um, uh, occasionally, it'll be a blood pressure. Occasionally, it'll be uh, something other than that. But um, it, it's been it's been really interesting to see. You know, uh, total knee was taken off the inpatient only list a couple years uh, before the pandemic. Total hip was taken off uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And then a lot of folks have blamed the pandemic for this surge in outpatient joint replacement. I, I, I disagree a little bit. I think that those that have used that as the, as the springboard, that's great. You've kind of caught up with where I think the market in, the, in healthcare care was going anyways. And maybe you were in an environment where they shut your hospital down and, you know, bad patient care, not having family available, and they're in their room for two days by themselves, so on and so forth. I do think that pushed a lot of folks to consider outpatient, but I think those of us that started you know, 10 years ago um, saw this coming and saw this trend, and, and clearly the numbers really speak for themselves.
0: So I think you're exactly right, and I think for communities like ours where outpatient joint replacement was not the expectation in the community, uh, patients here weren't necessarily familiar with that or expecting that the pandemic created an opening for that conversation when people really didn't want to be in the hospital, and it really opened the door uh, to have that conversation uh, with their surgeon. And now that there are a lot of those folks out in the community that have had outpatient joint replacement and had a great experience with it, it it's much more the norm and much more accepted. So I think I suspect there are other places like ours where that was sort of the, the catalyst that really you know, threw things over the tipping point.
1: Oh, I I definitely think so. And I think that your example is of your situation is is exactly what we've seen in that we've been driving the efficiency and, and rapid recovery and short length of stay for 20 plus years. And the next logical step for us about 10 years ago was outpatient because the system was already built for that. The expectation was, well, I'm only staying overnight anyways. Maybe I could get home today. And as you said, that our structure, our environment was already set up for that to be the next logical step. The pandemic and shutting down hospitals or patients' real aversion to going to a hospital um, really uh, changed that uh, more rapidly, I think, than it would have kind of on its own inertia. Yeah, so it's – we just presented our data. Uh, we reviewed one year uh, data um, of all patients that were, perf- surgery was performed at our outpatient facility and compared it to the Aura score. Um, and, uh, you know, Mike Medaghani credited with uh, putting a tremendous amount of work in and thought into that concept of having a scoring system to, to apply and, and, and validate safety. Uh, what we found is it's it's far too tight, it's far too strict. Um, and it's and it's very, very cumbersome. Uh, it is a great baseline to say, yeah, there's a super high positive predictive value that if you meet the aura score criteria, you can go home the same day safely. Uh, but the net isn't wide enough. Um, we found about thirty percent of people that we were able to send home safely fell outside of that of that score. And so we've used a relatively simple concept. And and again, we didn't start with this. You know, we started with a a pretty strict go, no-go checklist um, from a medical comorbidity standpoint and have really through uh, our experience, our teamwork with our gen med team and with our anesthesia team, it it basically goes, uh, do you have a health condition that cannot be optimized? Or do you have a situation where you have a situation health-wise, other than your hip or your knee or your ankle or your shoulder or whatever, that cannot be optimized? Well, if it truly can't be optimized, it's that much of a medical critical factor, you might not need to have an elective joint replacement. So it, it may be no joint replacement at all. Uh, and certainly that patient that can't be optimized medically does not Uh, should not be done at a freestanding ambulatory surgery center they might still be able to go home the same day from the hospital but having that safety net uh, of being able to stay if they need to to continue to optimize their health situation uh, prohibits them from being an outpatient in in our book then number two is very simple for us uh, simple country bone doctors do you have an organ failing so if you have a organ failure You should be done at the hospital where that organ failure can be managed. And people ask for specifics. Well, insert name of organ system. It wasn't that long ago that I took anatomy and biology. Uh, Brain is an organ. The hemopoietic system is an organ. The skin is an organ. The heart, I think, is still considered an organ. The liver, the kidneys, uh, the GI system. You know, so take each one of those, and if it's failing, and cannot be optimized out of failure, CHF is a great example. If you have true CHF, congestive heart failure, it is unsafe to be done as an outpatient. That's a, a very significant risk factor for perioperative complication. Um, brain failure. If you if you have significant dementia, uh, if you have significant other, uh, you know, neural abnormality that that is that can't be managed, then you can't be done as an outpatient. Same thing with with blood, you know, you've got some bad dyscrasia, you've got uh, significant anemia. Um, Insert name of organ failing, you're done at the hospital in order to manage the organ, not to manage your hip or your knee. And then finally, do you have adequate, safe support at home? So it's one thing to be healthy enough, uh, but are you in a position socially um, where you can go home safely and have enough support to be safe, and those are the, the the very rare, but but they do happen where a patient is certainly healthy enough, spry enough to go home the same day if they don't have enough help at home uh, in that system. And so those patients would be done at the hospital to where they can be either stay long enough that they're independent or potentially go to some type of a rehabilitation facility. So. Optimized medical condition, organ failure, support at home. If you pass those three checks, you're done at the ambulatory surgery center.
0: So this next question, feel free to answer this from the standpoint of actual data or from your opinion, which is certainly an expert one at this point. We went for a long time of debating if outpatient joint replacement in an ambulatory surgery center was as safe as in a hospital. Are we at a point now that it might be safer?
1: um i think it completely depends upon uh your your setup your structure your shop as we say i think that um to to make that blanket statement would be very difficult um just as i would say if you work in a health system and none of your patients are currently going home the same day uh, you've got a high percentage of patients going to a rehabilitation facility. You've got a high utilization of in-home uh, therapy or in-home nursing. Making the step from that system to outpatient surgery mandatory, I think, is very difficult and probably not as safe. One of the things that we found with the, our investigation into our own experience, but into things like the Aura score, is it does not take into account the intangibles like surgeon skill, the skill of the team, skill of anesthesia, the uh, experience and skill of the pre-op PACU nurses and staff, where you can have the perfectly healthy patient, if they got a, a, a crappy anesthetic experience, their pain might not be controlled or they might not be able to walk, because they're block, et cetera. Um, if their PACU team is not experienced um, in outpatient joints and trained and and skilled, they're going to be over-narcotized. They may end up getting a, a straight cath or something silly that they don't need. Um, and then finally, the facility itself, or or well, let me say skill of the surgeon. And by skill, I don't mean this in a in a blanket negative way, but Dr. Mallory used to say, there's really good fast surgeons and there's really bad fast surgeons, but there's no really good slow surgeons. And what he meant by that was efficiency. It's not speed, it's efficiency. And if you can be efficient and do a joint replacement in a in a relatively reasonable amount of time, but you're efficient to where it's that amount of time each time and not 40 minutes for a total knee, and then the next one's an hour and 30. That's an impossibility for anesthesia to manage very well, for the OR to manage well, for the team, people scrubbing in and out, so on and so forth. So if you do it an hour every time, great. If you do it 30 minutes every time, great. Those are intangibles that aren't calculated into a risk score, right? And so those are also intangibles that really are tough to measure to say outpatient is safer or everyone should have an outpatient joint because those variables are not the same. Even, you know, even here in Columbus across the street, uh, great, great medical center. Um, those are variables are different. And so I think the blanket statement that it's safer or is the standard is difficult to say um, without taking into account all of those variables that aren't measured by any of our scoring systems.
0: Totally agree, and I think the context around that is important. I guess I'm hearing some, you know, discussion points and admittedly unscientific ramblings if you think about it, that hospitals that are not set up at that level of experience and efficiency that you may see in the outpatient centers, where a patient comes in, they don't have as good an anesthetic, uh, maybe in a Internal medicine doctor sees them, and some of those chronic medical problems that you talked about that they're managing well at home uh, start to get managed differently. Other medications get added, they get different food, it's a different environment. Um, you know, when they're at home, their food is theirs, their medicine is there, their CPAP is there, everything that they are using to manage their issues chronically is there and in place and essentially carries on uninterrupted. Uninter-
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the, the really classic when we first started doing this was, well, if you got somebody who's a little heavy on the on the booze, you, they probably shouldn't be. You know, it's dangerous to do them as an outpatient. It, same thing with, you know, chronic narcotic use. It, the best place you can be is home with your Miller Lite, not in the hospital with some yellow bag hanging above your head while you're going bananas. Um it's it, it, those things of, of environment uh, of the patient, the family, where they're recovering, the hospital itself or the ambulatory surgery center itself, those environmental factors probably make a, a much bigger difference than what we see in published data or you know, prospective randomized. Rothman had a prospective randomized trial of outpatient joints and the crossover was like 20% in each group or higher. Um, it's because the intangibles aren't measured by those types of things.
0: Totally agree. Backing up a little bit to your practice there. I, when I was getting ready and reading through some of your bio, uh, over 180 scholarly articles, member of both the Knee Society and the Hip Society, thinking about your practice, uh, I really can't think of many private practice groups in the country certainly you know not huge uh, like joint implant surgeons where you've had sort of this huge impact on implant development training of surgeons uh, influence in the space and and really over multiple generations from uh, Dr. Mallory to then Dr. Lombardi and yourself and David Crawford and the other folks there, you know, knocking out great work over, over such a long period of time. That's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, I, I think it goes back, as I mentioned earlier. It, it, I, I think it goes back to Dr. Mallory and then the, the um, really incredible uh, occasion when Dr. Lombardi joined Dr. Mallory. But if you look back at, at that generation, Mallory's generation in particular, you've got these, routinely they were men, so I'll say guys, um, that were kind of these stations of thought leader, developer, entrepreneur, business, uh, logistics, kind of all combined in. And if you look at, you know, across that bandwidth of, of, of Mallory and his peers, you know, a Merrill Ritter, uh, Dick Rothman, uh, uh, Larry door, Aaron Hoffman, uh, you know, e- each of those guys, Rothman may be different now because of the way that their practices has, has changed. But, but if you look, you know, from the, the mid seventies through you know, mid nineties, even or early nineties, it was these kind of real, uh, pioneers in the, in the field that set up these incredibly influential Practices mostly in private practice, uh, some academic affiliation, and some deeper academic affiliation over the years. But you know, just those five or so that I just mentioned. Think about the influence that those five have had on on you know our generation yes. of orthopedic surgeons. Um, and now you're right. Now I think you've you've got societies, thankfully, that are strong. Hip Society, Knee Society, strong. Um, that I think are dominated and not in a bad way, uh, with your HSS, Mayo Clinic, but you've got this kind of hybrid of, of uh, Ortho Carolina, Rothman, um, some others that uh, that that are incredible contributors. But but you're right. I think that the reason we've been successful for as long as we have is is the shoulders of giants. And you know, again, looking right down the line with. Tom Mallory and, and Merrill and Larry and, and Dick and Aaron, you know, everyone recognizes them all by their first name, which means they must've been pretty influential.
0: No doubt. Shifting gears a little bit. Uh, you are, I, I believe, uh, the most prolific, uh, Oxford unicompartmental knee arthroplasty surgeon in the world or, or very close to it. If not, tell me about your, your journey with, uh, with partial knee replacement and, and what that constitutes in your practice.
1: Yeah, that, that's that been, you know, between, between partial knee and particularly the Oxford um, and then anterior hip uh, surgery. When I, when I started down that, that journey, those have really been probably the two most influential things in my practice uh, through the years, at least until recently. And, and when I joined um, Dr. Mallory and Dr. Lombardi, uh, in 2002, 2001 for my fellowship then joined in 2002. Um, they were, you know, Mallory was super in, in, involved and intrigued with partial knees. Uh, Dr. Lombardi was doing some, um, I, you know, quickly at the end of residency, tried out a few repices, um, cause I knew I was joining Tom and, and Adolf in the, in the biomet world. And, uh, I really was in really intrigued with partial knee, started doing some research as soon as I got here uh, on partial knee and some of the outcomes, Uh, really marrying that partial knee rapid recovery uh, synergy. Um, And then uh, had the opportunity uh, through a really close friend of mine, Lance Perry, who was with biomet for many, many years um, to get exposure to the Oxford. And then when the Oxford was being, was going to finally after 20 odd years receive FDA approval in the U S it was predicated on surgeons had to receive special training in order to, uh, implant the device. And so obviously a new device to the market, but a requirement for training, there was no one to train. And so I was very fortunate to go over in, uh, uh, 2004 to Oxford and, uh, do the Oxford training course and some train the trainer type course uh, in Oxford, uh, and then came back and started doing the, the Oxford partial knee. Um, admittedly, I, I thought that those guys were just as full of shit as everyone thinks I am. Um, <laughs> you know, ignore the kneecap, leg crooked, doesn't matter, you know, all this stuff that, and I thought that was completely crazy. Um, but quickly, uh, really by quickly, I mean, probably 12 to 18 months of experience. Uh, I ramped up from doing four to six percent of my practice to to thirty, and then forty, and then over half of the primary knees in my practice uh, that I did um, between probably 2008 and 2018 uh, were uh, were partial knees, um, and and it and it's remained an incredibly high percentage. That percentage has changed a little bit um, in recent years. The the influence of that being partners that do partial knee. Uh, Adolph has always done them, but he's always been the total knee guy. Um, but having younger partners and 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 really skilled partners that do partial knee diffuses a little bit of that. Um, and then, uh, and we can come back to it, but doing a little bit different technique with total knee, I've seen some fast recovery. And and so it, it's, I wouldn't say tempered my enthusiasm for partials, but it certainly increased my enthusiasm for, for rapid recovery with a total knee. And so, uh, starting in 2004, ramped up to... A huge number of of oxford partials Um, i've done my share of of fixed bearing devices um, uh, cemented fixed bearing cementless fixed bearing Uh, we were involved with the cementless oxford mobile bearing study still yet to be approved in the us but uh, very very intriguing Uh, very interesting Uh, if you look at the registries it's got really great results around the world Um, it's been it's been a great journey Uh, been able to be involved with teaching and educating on the partial for for you know almost that entire time Um, it's been it's been really rewarding for my practice uh, most importantly rewarding for my patients I you know I had people say well you can't do that percentage and you know they're going to run across the street and y'all get revised it as you said I am in private practice and and if all my partial knees were going across to get revised, no one would probably show up to the office tomorrow to, to have a knee replacement. And so um, it's simply not the case, the survivorship. We just published our our minimum 15 year results and we had 82% uh, all cause uh, survivorship at a minimum of 15 years, an average of about 17 years, which is, which is pretty good. It's a little more than 1% failure per year, which is what most of the registries have shown. Um, And that includes learning curve and that includes early implant design with the Oxford. So uh, continue to be incredibly enthusiastic uh, about partial knee and, and the mobile bearing device in particular.
0: All right. So you hit on something that I've got on my list to talk about too, but let's, let's not make that step over from uni to what you're doing with total knees right now, but back that up. So what, who is that patient in your practice that's getting a partial knee replacement?
1: Yeah, so I still I still use the so-called Nuffield criteria, which is the the, the hospital in Oxford. Um, the, the there's a bunch of old articles that I had never read because you know, like any other orthopedic surgeon, they they published it, so I clearly haven't seen it. Um, about this condition called anterior medial osteoarthritis, and so anterior medial osteoarthritis, by definition, is bone on bone arthritis in the medial compartment. With an intact ACL, and that means it's a correctable deformity. The intraarticular deformity is correctable. The overall limb alignment doesn't matter. Most of these patients are in varus to start with. Um, you know, varus knees get more bow legged with time, and that's what this disease is. So, bone on bone, normal ACL or intact ACL, which means it's a correctable deformity almost always gets a partial knee replacement. I say almost always because in the 20 years or so that I've been doing them, um, I, have, I have turned down or I've, I've started to be more concerned about patellofemoral symptoms and also about um, uh, patellofemoral radiographic findings. The Oxford group would say you could ignore it because it doesn't matter. I think mostly you can ignore stuff that you normally would be worried about, but I don't think you can ignore ebernated bone in the kneecap joint. And uh, Ferris Adad had a had a good study where they documented the condition of the patellofemoral joint, both trochlea and patella, went ahead and did the partial, and then the scores were directly related to the condition of the kneecap joint. And so. It, the worse the kneecap joint, the worse the scores. Now, the scores were still good, but given the alternative of, of you know, total knee that's also good versus partial knee that might be problematic, um, it, I will do uni, medial uni with medial facet disease, but not central trochlea and not lateral facet disease, particularly if it's radiographic. Otherwise, you know, I don't care how many cats they have, or if they, you know, have a Disney world sweatshirt on, or, um, if they, you know, if they're, I like the ones that wear the, um, uh, wear the wrist, the, the, the athletic wristbands underneath their watch, cause they're allergic to metal. Um, all that, that doesn't make any difference to me. Um, I, I think it's a, 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 clinical radiographic anatomic, uh, indication, and that's medial osteoarthritis.
0: Excellent. I think that's well considered. All right, you got you got me one one more tangent here uh, is metal allergy, metal hypersensitivity in in arthroplasty ER real.
1: Yeah, I you know, I don't know that it's real, but people think it is, so so I do pay attention to it. I I've been as much as I I don't think that it's as significant as as we've given it a lot of credit for. Um, you know, I think the market has driven some of it. I think our own research has driven some of it. Dr. Lombardi, um, those of you that know him, uh, he is not allergic to jewelry um, and certainly not allergic to expensive jewelry. Um, He uh, he is really into the metal allergy testing, uh, uses titanium implants um, for patients that are are considered uh, to have sensitivities. Um, And so our practice has a tremendous amount of data uh, on self-reported metal condition, uh, nickel allergy, jewelry allergy, so on and so forth, and so we happen to screen all of our patients uh, with a questionnaire. And if that questionnaire is positive, if they're if they have a suspected sensitivity, it may be completely uh, psychosomatic, let's say, or it could be serious metal problem. Then I would use an alternative uh, type implant. Um, I think in the total knee space, the, it's a, that's really a no-brainer. Um, almost every manufacturer, regardless of, of technique, is going to have a uh, metal sensitivity alternative implant. Um, the system I use uh, has, you know, the the gold type implant. Um, other systems will have uh, titanium with special coating. Um, uh, TJO just came out with their their Oram knee, which is a titanium knee that's also uh, coated in a in a patented coated technology that's uh, that's really pretty interesting, not just from a metal sensitivity but from a wear uh, standpoint. Uh, obviously, Smith and Nephew's had their their uh, solution for years, um, so I I think in the total knee world, it's it's fairly easy to to consider. I think in the partial new world, you really start to make some, potentially uh, make some compromises that you may or may not be comfortable doing. If you're in the US, if you're a big Oxford user and you are gonna pay attention to the nickel metal sensitivity, you don't have a good option. Um, if you're a fixed bearing user, I think you have some options. Um, the uh, There's some great data, uh, Peter Aldinger out of Germany, uh, thousands of oxford partial knees um, metal testing allergy testing self-reported absolutely no difference in outcomes revision rate scores uh, absolutely no difference with the oxford partial knee in patients that have a reported nickel sensitivity but and i'm not worried about it from from a medical legal standpoint I
0: just worry I it, just worry no about, about it from
1: a patient satisfaction, satisfaction standpoint. Standpoint. and if you tell and them if you, you tell them, tell them that, that if they tell you they do, tell you ask you ask, ask, them, you ask which, them, which we do which we do are, are you sensitive to metal and, and they say yes and then you go ahead and do it and then they have a bad outcome even if it's completely unrelated I I get concerned about that and so I, I as much as that's a super long answer to say I don't really believe in it but I practice it um that, and we've got great results. We've got great data with Titanium Vanguard knee. Um, uh, and then I
0: think all the other companies have uh, have options as well. Uh, I think that's a great thought process with it and a great way to approach it. All right. So jumping back to what we kind of that, that discussion between unicompartmental arthroplasty, total knee arthroplasty, uh, disclosure, uh, my uh, partial knee replacement career has been essentially all fixed bearing, but I did train on the Oxford system uh, with the mobile bearing, uh, a medial ball and socket. So when I started doing some medial pivot total knees, uh, there was very much a light bulb of, oh, this, this feels very familiar. This, this harkens back to that medial ball and socket of an Oxford, uh, not with a mobile bearing uh, granted, Uh, but felt very familiar, except that in a total knee format where I was uh, resurfacing the lateral side. Um, So tell me what you're doing with total knee replacement now.
1: Yeah, so uh, as of today, I'm doing a medial sphere. Um, And my disclosure would be I I do a little bit of training and education for Medacta, um, but I have no other bias. I have no uh, royalties or development agreements or anything like that. So this is purely um, where I've transitioned to in, in my practice, I do a, um, I do the medial sphere, uh, GMK knee, uh, on all primaries, uh, with kinematic alignment. And that is a change after 20 years of practice. Um,
0: what got you there for that change?
1: Yeah. So I, I was trying to consider a medial pivot-type knee, a, a sphere-type knee, um, only because it, it seemed to make sense. And the entire market seems to be talking about medial congruent, you know, the, the Zimmerman came out with a medial congruent, the Wright Medical and, and subsequent designs have had medial pivot, uh, J&J, Depuy Synthes just came out with a medial knee uh smith and nephew was coming out with a medial knee i thought well boy somebody must be know what they're doing here and I'm, i must be on the outskirts i've done an ultra congruent um uh sort of semi constrained ultra congruent cr femur for probably 10 plus years in everyone and uh, but with mechanical
0: alignment And so I wanted to try leaving or uh, sacrificing the PCL with those. I
1: take it out if it's too tight. And if it's not too tight, it means I've probably already cut it by accident. Um, (laughs) and so, uh, with an ultra congruent bearing. And so I started doing the medial pivot, uh, medial sphere, the GMK with Medacta using mechanical alignment. And my, my sort of, algorithm for mechanical alignment is cut the femur straight, cut the tibia straight, actually rotate the femur, cut it, you know, size it, cut it, put in the trials, put in the plastic and whatever's tight, release it. Um, relatively simple, but it seems to work relatively well. And I had done it for roughly 20 years that way. The, I don't know about what your experience is with a medial pivot, if it's a different device than what I've am discussing, but
0: the the the, with the knee that i'm talking about i found it really i'm speaking about a gmk sphere as a medial pivot and i and i think you've made a distinction because to my understanding you know true medial pivot ball and socket is is in the us is uh gmk sphere and i think uh evolution from microport and then uh as you said you've got several now that have a a medial congruent bearing which is really a different animal
1: yeah, it's a, we, let's come back to that because I think that's an important uh, discussion. But so I was trying to use a, a ball and socket immediately and using mechanical alignment and ligament balancing technique that I've done for years, I was not happy. I was having a huge struggle getting the knee balanced the way that I'm accustomed to an ultra congruent feeling stability wise in flexion and extension. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, maybe it makes the most sense instead of cutting the knee and then putting the medial sphere where I think it goes, maybe if I put the sphere where it goes, where it belongs anatomically by doing kinematic caliper measured alignment, maybe that would make a bigger difference that I'm actually, okay, we're going to agree to a ball and socket. Well. I need to put the ball and socket where it belongs anatomically and kinematically or else I've changed everything and it's not going to work any different or work any better than than any other technique. And so combining those two thoughts, um, I switched literally from one day to the next 100 percent kinematic caliper alignment, unrestricted. Uh, the tibias are really crooked, um, unrestricted calipered kinematic alignment and i went full bore uh, a little less than a year ago Um, knock wood i've had you know i've done several hundred knees at this point i've had no tibial failures it's early they might all fall out at two years i don't know but that's not what the data would suggest Uh, but what i have seen is and and we just uh, had this accepted for publication at six weeks The improvement in range of motion is significantly higher than my last 200 mechanically aligned ultra congruent knees. Um, The manipulation rate is one tenth that of my mechanically aligned ultra congruent knees. And that's after 20 years of experience versus, you know, three months of experience. And knee scores are already higher at six weeks. And then just as a surrogate, we accomplished what we set out to accomplish. The rate of releasing any soft tissues went from 30% to less than 3%. And those 3% were all within the first 30 knees that I did uh, with, this, with this, and I've not done any releases since then. So it's, um, it, as long as the, and I, the, the disclaimer caveat, as long as the tibias all don't fall out in a year or two, which I don't think they That's will based on data, this is, there is something to this. And the improvement in the patients has made the clinic way more like uni patients. And I feel a lot more comfortable doing a total knee and someone that I think, well, they do good with a uni, but I don't like their kneecap. I, you know, all the things you got in the back of your mind when you do a ton of unis. Um, this has made a huge difference. And again, I have no... I'm no dog in the fight in terms of anybody making the choice to do this but me and, my, and for my patients, but it is an absolute game changer. Um, it, it also makes the operation way easier. I mean, <laughs> setting the thing, cutting it, measuring it, cutting more if you've taken too little and changing something else if you've taken too much, it, it, is, it makes the operation really easy.
0: Okay, so a statement, so I'll, I'll back some of this up a little bit because I do have some listeners that are not in the the surgeon rep ortho world community. They're just patients or, or folks that like to listen to this. We got, you know, kind of deep dive uh, nerdy total knee stuff here for a little bit. Um, Keith's talking about classically what we've known with mechanical alignment was the idea that we were going to straighten a patient's leg out when we did a knee replacement. Everything was going to be... You know, the hip, knee, and ankle were all going to line up completely straight. Well, very few people start out exactly that way, to your point. They usually bow a little bit in one direction or the other. And with a an a kinematic alignment, um, we're, we're more closely reproducing that and trying to resurface the knee uh, in a way that respects their soft tissues and, and hopefully helps them to have a better outcome. Um, I, I think. You know, diving back in on it, obviously, Dr. Howell's been hugely influential in this this area and has been, been beating this drum for quite a while. Sometimes a little hard to pin everybody down on what kinematic alignment is. You know, I mean, if we go way back, you know, anatomic alignment, I mean, Dr. Krakow, Dr. Hungerford, I mean, old school PCA knee we put the femur in valgus, the tibia in varus. We, we had an oblique joint line that was sort of matching more normal anatomy. How, how is this different in, in a, in whatever sense it's explainable without pictures or without being in an OR? What, what is your approach to what kinematic alignment is and, and how do you get there?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I think that the two things are, so, I showed, uh, in a presentation, um, I have kept all my emails when it comes to industry and and relationships since, since I started in practice and started working with the industry and I have a a folder on my computer, um, went in or what? Well, you never know what's going to happen, right? I mean, um, (laughs) uh, the, uh, I have a folder from 2006 when, uh, and on one of the files, there's an image of uh, PSI or patient-specific cutting guide that we would, that I designed uh, with, and the initials on the bottom of it are KB for Keith Barron, SH for Steve Howell, and CC. And I'm going to leave, leave that one uh, for people to research if they're interested. But um, it was with a, a, a concept called Otis Med. And um, it was Steve Howell trying to use patient specific alignment and pre-op imaging to figure out where the actual axes, three axes of the knee were, didn't have a pivot knee or a medial sphere knee. And I argued with him, literally, I have the emails of us, me arguing with Steve that this is nuts. These legs are all crooked. They're not straight. What? What about Hungerford and Krakow? And those all failed. And what are you doing? You're a goofball. And you know now, uh, some what is it now? 16, 18 years later. Yeah. Uh, I was on a webinar with him last night, talking about how great this concept is. And and I think that, you know, w- when when total hip replacement was invented, uh, John Charnley, who was knighted. By the Queen, Sir John Charnley uh, was banished to Ridington. and they basically sent him out in the middle of nowhere to uh, what I believe to be an old uh, insane asylum, and said, "You go out here and figure out how to do hip replacements. We're going to practice real medicine here in, in in the big city," and that's where he invented hip replacement. and And I think these types of folks, like Steve and and Charnley, and yeah, I said them both in the same sentence. I mean. He has had a concept that he's believed in, and he has carried it with him, um, and, and he's carried that cross and carried that sword uh, for 20 plus years, and and I think he's right. Uh, I think he was right then, and I think he's definitely right now. And the big difference, Krakow, if you look at the instrumentation that they were using, it was kinematic alignment. I mean, that's it, exactly what it was. Uh, both flexion because they weren't actually rotating the femurs, Um, and as you said, the the coronal alignment. The problem was is that that entire camp got completely bastardized because they had really, 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 three reallys, really, really, really bad poly, right? Heat pressed uh, gamma in air plastic with a bad locking mechanism. And they combine it with cementless technology, which we can come back to that conversation too. But they they combine it with cementless technology and really really bad plastic. Had they had really good plastic and no issue with the kneecap, uh, we'd all be doing knees that way today. I'm convinced of it. But they had bad plastic, and everyone blamed it on the alignment, uh, not knowing about plastic. And and yeah, there's less wear of bad plastic if you use mechanical alignment and put the weight right through the middle of the knee, there's not more wear with good plastic, with a good design, medial pivot, i.e. medial sphere, and good plastic with kinematic alignment.
0: So for everybody that uh, missed the webinar, how do you approach that with uh, calipered KA, and do you use any of the uh, PSI systems that are available with that?
1: I have not used any of the enabling technologies yet. and some of that is when I started doing this, I said, okay, tomorrow we're gonna do this. And so, you know, get, getting the CT scan, getting the guides made, and starting to use them, you need a little more lead time than tomorrow. Sure. Um, and it's been really successful and it's really, really easy uh, without it. I think that uh, my good friend Fred Kushner uh, told me not to drop names, but uh, Fred Kushner says all the time when he gives his talk about obese patients um, psi might be this concept might be the ideal for the obese patient because the manual instruments are harder to use um, incision has to be much bigger I think in the obese patient for the manual instruments so so in my mind uh, that may be the, the the good combo is is uh, the Medacta uh, my knee concept with obese patients, kinematic caliper confirmed uh, alignment. But for me now, I use this super simple uh, uh, instruments. At our surgery center, we try to limit the number of trays that each vendor can bring in the room to two. And so we've taken all of the junk out of the trays that we never use. And all we have in there is an IM rod and the paddle and the cutting guide. And then we so, I'll, I'll cut the distal femur uh, varus or valgus uh, deformity, uh, measure the, the resections and make any adjustment necessary so that I'm putting back the same metal and that I've removed with the saw and bone and cartilage. And then in flexion, I do the same thing. And so, uh, visually, it looks like it's internally rotated, uh, but every time you cut it, you get the grand piano sign in the anterior femur Uh, and the posterior condylar resections are the same seven millimeters in this case on each side, medial and lateral. And, uh, and then same thing on the tibia. Um, I think PSI might be helpful, but I, I have no, you could do it with a robot as well. You know, the, the cases that I've done with the, with the Rosa, with the Zimmer, uh, I tend to use a kinematic concept with that as well. I didn't know that's what I was doing. But uh, unless you want to argue with the robot, that's kind of what it what it tells you to do um, in order to make the rectangles rectangular without doing any releases. Um, So you can do it with whatever enabling technology you want to use. My enabling technology literally is a caliper um, and it makes it really darn easy, very efficient, uh,
0: very cost efficient. Great answer. Thank you. So that's obviously been a big change in your practice. Is there anything out there that's a technique or a technology that uh, people are sleeping on right now that they shouldn't be? That you you want to just drop a hot take that this is going to be big in the next ten to twenty years?
1: Wow. Okay, I'm going to try to do this in, in any uh, any any inherent bias or uh, or conflict. I'll admit, um, I, I am an investor both in in the technology uh, from a company called Beamalloy. Uh, and also a, a minority investor in in the company that uh, develops devices for TJO, uh, but I think their orum technology is is probably a game changer. Um, you, you've completely eliminated cobalt chrome from the system, so you've got titanium implants, um, but the the, the beam alloy coating, or what they're calling orum, um, uh is definitely way different than Oxinium. Uh, and it's way different than trying to ion bombard or or uh, or CO2 bombard titanium to make it harder. Um, I think that the the options with uh, various ideas on both the hip and the knee um, are really. I, I think there's a lot of very interesting um, things that that I think a company like TJO that's small and nimble will be able to. To accomplish with with that kind of technology, um, uh, so I think that's one. I think uh, if I mean, I think that I feel like outpatient surgery efficiency. We've done a, a really really good job, um, as you said. There's been there's been variables in the market that have that have driven that. Um, I think continuing to understand efficiency. Um, and potentially uh, how AI can can lead into that. I'm not a real big AI brainy kind of, certainly not clinically, um, but <clears throat> if you're thinking about efficiency, um, it, uni versus total, if you're having to back up your uni with an entire set of total knee, which means all the inventory, all the instruments, and you're doing it you know, at a surgery center, it'd be really great to have Uh, an effective way to know that that's going to be a uni. Um, So I think some of that kind of technology and brains is, is going to be really interesting uh, in the future. And then I, I, I mean, I think that I've said this when patients ask, I'm sure you have patients ask you all the time, well, should I wait to get my knee fixed? Cause you know, maybe they'll come up with some super new technology next year. You know, a year ago, I would have never said, yeah, wait so that I can figure out how to do kinematic alignment with a, a medial sphere knee. Um, it, that's been really revolutionary in my practice, but it's not revolutionary in the market. Uh, like you said, Hal's been yelling at me for 20 years about it. Um, so I, wh- what do you think? Do you think there's, you think there's something on the that's, that's right out there on the horizon or, or at the end of the tunnel that's going to be a huge game changer that you see out there?
0: Uh, I'm just a dude in private practice down here in lower Alabama. I'm, uh, I'm going to experts like you to kind of get, uh, figure it out and be on the front end. No, I think all of those things, I think, uh, I think AI is interesting, as you said, not, I mean, and a lot of times it's just this black box that everybody says, oh, AI, and then something magical happens. But uh, maybe the predictive analytics of, of who should get a uni, who should get a total, what age should they have it at, where we can really give patients Really informed information about the choices that they're making and what they can expect from those, and who something works well in, and and who it doesn't.
1: And I, you know, you see it at all the meetings, and obviously all the almost all, at least the big vendors push in their robot. And you mentioned it about kinematic alignment. Um, I mean, how many times now that I'm, you know, in the KA space, do I hear people say, "Oh, well, I've been doing KA my whole career. I, I, you know, I cut the." and Varus and I, you know, I, gentleman's Varus or insert name or whatever, that's not the same as what we're doing with, with calibered kinematic alignment. I mean, we're putting the knees in frankly crooked, uh, compared with, with what, what we were thinking or what I was thinking a year ago. And so we say kinematic alignment. And if you Google it, or if you get on PubMed and look it up, there's functional alignment, there's kinematic alignment, there's constrained kinematic, there's inverse kinematic, there's, I don't know what's what other than the way that I do it, but I think right. that that is, is something I think we need to, if we're gonna start really researching and considering this, we're gonna have to really have some clear definitions of what we're talking about. And I believe the same thing to be true in the robot space. Everyone's got a robot, but none of them are actual robots. Right, I mean, none of them are like a Da Vinci. None of them are autonomous, you know, r- robots. They're they're, you know, maybe a haptic arm, maybe a uh, uh, a computer assisted digital cutting guide, uh, you know, a navigation assisted cutting guide placement device. I mean, but we we throw out words like, well, robot faster recovery or robot. Decreased blood loss, or robot better alignment, or what does that mean? What what do you mean robot? And and when you use the robot, are you doing kinematic alignment? You do a mechanical alignment? Are you using a sphere? Are you using an ultra congruent? Are you? I think all this space has gotten really noisy, um, probably from a marketing.
0: at one point on a podcast I referred to to orthopedic robotics as being in in the model T stage and uh, I got some flack for that. Uh, and, and back to what you said that's interesting about KA and some of these other things is that we're we're applying these terms to a population of let's call it a million primary knees done in the US annually. And yes, it is all it's all that same procedure those knees are all very very different. I mean a knee that has little or no coronal plane deformity, no flexion contracture, good motion, and just has surface wear is very different from that obese patient with a 15-degree flexion contracture, maybe, you know, additional coronal plane deformity Um, in in what's happening in that knee in terms of osteophytes, in terms of soft tissues. And, you know, is there a break point where, you know, okay, we really – maybe KA is not, is not great for this patient, or, or maybe we're really moving to a constrained implant where we sort of, they've reached a stage with their knee where we abandon the idea of trying to reproduce normal kinematics and go with something that, you know, bends and straightens and is, is stable. And there's a crossover point in there because they're such different populations. 100%.
1: And, and I think the, the argument that, that Steve Howell would give is, that's why we're doing ka is it is it's different for each one of those each individual's knee is going to be different left to right maybe subtly different you know look at how many windswept knees you see you know why does somebody get windswept I don't know maybe they live on the wrong side of the hill in Alabama I don't know but they they uh, but you can't treat both those knees the same at least you're not going to do this exact same cut but with a calipered kinematic approach you are doing the same thing it's just It's just different um and so maybe that is the answer to to serving this varied uh real heterogeneous population is doing a patient specific calipered kinematic you know concept um i think it also brings up the 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 tools with which we measure our results right i mean the, the ceiling effect of a knee society score is tremendous. Um, you can have an, a knee society score of 95 and, and your neighbor have a score of 95 and, you know, y- you run a marathon and, and they, you know, can hang out with their grandkids. Um, you know, so forgotten joint score maybe is better. Um, what factors influence that? You know, who knows at this point? We're learning more about it. Um, But I I think that's important too. It it really boils down to patient satisfaction. We we had a a study we just published with, with Dave Crawford looking at patient satisfaction with range of motion. Number one, their range of motion satisfaction did not perfectly correlate with their actual range of motion, which makes sense, right? Some people that have really stiff knees are really happy that they still have a stiff knee. And then satisfaction didn't hundred percent correlate with the need for manipulation and again my manipulation rate's gone down to about zero with kinematic but it's interesting to we measure that as a as our barometer of success and it's not the same barometer that the patients are measuring success with so i i I agree with you I, i don't know that where the answer is i can tell you this i've not hit that outlier where I'm like, oh my gosh, I need a constrained knee or I'm going to go back and and do something different than kinematic, at least not thus far. Um, And I've done some bad knees, uh, primary knees with this technology and and with this technique. And I've not hit one yet, but again, it's early for me. Um, I'm anticipating seeing that, uh, potentially seeing a population that perhaps isn't doing as well it's a standard deviation outside the recovery uh, or outside the results and saying, do I need to do something different for those people than, than what I'm doing right now?
0: I think that's a great way to approach it. Uh, and, and very interesting. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful uh, ranging conversation on a lot of topics here. Uh, Keith, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I love what you're doing. Um, I, I particularly love our, our, uh, crowd that we have, uh, commentating on our, on our LinkedIn, uh, pages and and LinkedIn posts. It's, uh, I, I enjoy seeing that every day and what you're doing and, and a lot of the other colleagues that, uh, that you've had on your show. It's, uh, it's a great privilege
0: to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much.